Well, one fine day in 1941, Violet Bailey and her fiancé, Samuel Booth, were strolling through the English countryside. Deeply in love and engaged to be married, a diamond engagement ring sparkled on Violet's finger, her most treasured possession. But their romantic bliss suddenly ended. One of them said something that hurt the other. An argument ensued and escalated. And at the worst point, Violet became so angry that she pulled the diamond engagement ring from her finger and threw her arm back and hurtled the treasured possession with all her might into the field. The ring sailed through the air, fell to the ground, and nestled under the grass in such a way that it was impossible to see. Violet and Samuel, as you would expect, soon made up. And they walked and walked and walked through the field, hunting for the lost ring. But they never found it. They married two months later. They had a child and eventually a grandson. Part of the family lore was the story of the lost engagement ring. Violet and Samuel grew old together, and in 1993, Samuel passed away. Fifteen years past that, the ring had still not been forgotten. One day, Violet's grandson got an idea. Perhaps he could find his grandmother's ring with a metal detector. He bought one and went to the field where Violet had hurtled her treasured possession 67 years earlier. He turned on his metal detector and began to crisscross the field, waving the detector back and forth over the grass. After two hours of searching, he found what he was looking for. Later, filled with joy and pride, he placed the diamond ring into the hand of his astonished grandmother, Violet. The treasured possession had come home. The treasured possession had come home. The lost had been found. The spurned had been redeemed. The discarded had been brought back. It's a beautiful story. It's a simple story. But it tells us something, something beautiful. The treasured possession came home. So it is when a lost sinner finds his home, his way back to Christ. So it is with Israel. God's treasured possession will one day come home. R.C. Sproul wrote, One of the great controversies among Christians is how we are to understand biblical prophecies of the future with specific references to the Jewish people. Does God have in his plan another chapter be written for Israel as a nation and as a people? Is what is going on today in Palestine significant to biblical prophecy, or is it just part of the normal passage of secular history? Some take the position that there is no more to be done of any special character with the Jewish people other than their conversion of individuals from Judaism to Christianity. Others are convinced that the Christian church has become the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, and all biblical prophecies in the Old Testament and the new that refer to the future of Israel find their fulfillment totally and exclusively in the Christian church. Still others are of the opinion that God indeed does plan a new redemptive work specifically targeted at the Jews. 
and with a view to their restoration in the kingdom of God. Personally, he said, I've been persuaded that God does indeed to write another chapter for the Jewish people. I do think that what is happening in Palestine today is significant, and I have been persuaded that there will be a restoration of the Jewish people to faith in Christ. The treasured possession will come home. Well, please open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11, as this chapter talks about the treasured possession coming home. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. Romans 11, 11 through 25. The scripture says, So I ask, did they, the Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means a reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as a firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches." If you are, remember, it is not you support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Father, now we come to your word, inerrant, inspired, here to teach us, to challenge us, to inform us. And Lord, may me so humbly submit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans 11, 11 is the fourth in a series of parallel questions that Paul has asked. In Romans 10, 18, uh, Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Then in Romans 10, 19, he says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Oh, yes, they understood, and they refused to trust Christ. 
Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And now in Romans 11.11, 11, Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Do you see the progression here in these questions? Have they heard the gospel? Yes. Did they understand that Jesus was their Messiah? Yes, but they rejected him. Has God rejected them in return? No, never. God, as always, has a chosen remnant by his grace. Did they stumble over Christ in such a way to fall beyond recovery? No, never. His lost treasure will come home. The natural branches will be grafted back into their own olive tree. Oh, the wonder of our God, the kindness and the patience of our God. Today, we're going to see three realities of the gospel for Israel, even though they stumbled over Christ. The first reality of the gospel for Israel was to make them jealous. The second reality of the gospel for Israel was to make us humble. And the third reality of the gospel for Israel was to offer the cut-off branches an opportunity to be regrafted in. Just like the rejection of Christ by Israel wasn't total, as we saw last week, it is also not final. No, God had preserved a remnant chosen by grace, so the rejection of Christ by Israel is in total, and God is not cast off as people with the redemption multiplied to the Gentiles, so their rejection is not final. What is Paul's answer to his own question in verse 11? Not at all. God forbid, it is impossible. For Paul, it is unthinkable that the Jews may have stumbled to their ultimate ruin. Verse 11 ends with, Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. They have not stumbled to their ultimate ruin, but rather their rejection of Christ. Salvation has been proclaimed to the Gentiles so as to draw Israel back to God. Paul says again in verses 13 and 14, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In the very first description of Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 9, as he was still blind from his salvation encounter with Christ on that road to Damascus, Ananias was told to go to Paul and to heal him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's first and primary mission was to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. He was an apostle, a sent one from Christ to the Gentiles. And he took glory in his ministry. He took honor to his calling. He cherished the importance of his service to the Gentiles. He magnified, he amplified, he heightened his calling from Christ to the Gentiles. He did so both to to do his best to his calling and to do his best to make his fellow Jews jealous and thus come to Christ. Twice 
in verse 11 and verse 14, he mentions the idea of jealousy leading his kinsmen back to Christ. So let's think about this, jealousy. We often think about the word jealousy as a negative word, right? Like the dictionary says, being jealous is a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry or success or advantages. It's characterized by or proceeding from suspicious fears or envious resentment. Jealousy is being envious of someone for something they have that you want. But jealousy can also be positive. See, positive jealousy is being protective of someone for something you have that someone else wants. It's good and right for a husband and wife to jealously protect the exclusiveness of their love for each other. I am jealous of my wife's love for me. It is for me and only for me. Do you see the difference? Negative jealousy is envy. Positive jealousy is protection. I see both of these aspects in how Israel's jealousy could lead them to Christ. The positive way is that Jesus is their Messiah. He's ethnically a Jew. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God, very God, incarnated himself as an ethnic Jew. That's my prophesied Messiah that you Gentiles are worshiping. He is ours. He is one of us, they could say. Perhaps their unique connection to Christ would jealously draw them back to him. The envy way Israel could be uh, come jealous of the Gentiles is not in the fact of who Christ is, but in the effect of what Christ has done, making them envious of the Gentiles. Salvation and hope, freedom from the law and purpose and love and worship and joy and kindness and peace and abundance life and over and over and over and more and more and more. The hope was that when they saw what Christ had done in the lives of the Gentiles, it would drive them to say, I want what they have. Paul is hoping through his ministry to the Gentiles that he might make his kinsmen jealous, envious of what the Gentiles have in Christ. And thus, they would want Christ. What a challenge, right? Think about this. Are our lives so engulfed in Christ that the world around us is jealous of what Christ has done to us? Jealous to the point of wanting what we have? Does Christ's salvation, the hope, the freedom, the love, the purpose, the service, the joy, the kindness, the peace, the abundant life, so permeate us in Jesus Christ, so permeate our lives, that when people look at us, they think, I want what they got. Could it be, perhaps, that the people in our lives are not jealous of us because we're so much more like them than we are so much like our Christ? Paul anticipated that Christ would make such a difference in a Gentile's life that the Jews would be so jealous that they would want him to. Folks, I can hardly think of a more challenging or more convicting truth. 
Jesus taught this truth this way in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He said, You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christ has such an impact on our lives that as we reflect his love and his character and his joy and his service, people just don't see us, but they see Christ in us and thus in turn recognize God in us. This truth hits all of us in different ways. Titus 2.10 challenges us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Another translation puts it, uh, make the teaching about our Savior attractive. Can people see Christ in you? Are you adorning the teaching of God? When people see us, do they see Christ? Are they attracted to Christ by seeing us? Are people looking at us and our lives and our church and saying, I want what they got? Well, if the answer is no, which it is for all of us at some level, evaluate. What is something as a Christian right now that you could change in your life to better adorn Christ in your life? so that they may see Christ in you and glorify God, the Father. For just as the end of verse 11 and verse 14 are parallel, so also what follows them, verses 12 and 15, are parallel. Just think, if, if the sin and rejection of Israel of Christ has brought about the reconciliation and spiritual riches to the Gentile word, just how much more blessings will there be with their acceptance and their inclusion in Christ? If God can bring about such great blessings through their rejection, just think about the abundance of blessings that will come through their acceptance. Verse 16 is a proverbial thought, transitioning to the illustration of the olive tree. It teaches that if the original part is holy, set apart for God's use, so the whole thing is holy. Therefore, the branches, by necessity, must take on the characteristic of the root. If they don't, they must be pruned and new ones added. See, that's what verse 17 teaches us. Some branches were broken off. They were not yielding to the nourishment of the root, and other branches were grafted in. So as to now share in the nourishment of the root. Which brings us to our second point today in verses 17 to 22. The reality of the gospel's effect on Israel should make us humble. Paul is using this picture of the pruning and grafting in of branches on an olive tree to illustrate the cutting off of unbelieving Israel and the inclusion of believing Gentiles. Here's a picture for us of olive trees, uh, cultivated olive trees in the garden of Gethsemane. One wrote, olive trees are magnificent particularly their root system, and the the trunk of the olive tree is massive, strong, and very beautiful. 
with these root systems and trunks, olive trees have gorgeous branches bearing lovely fruit. Paul's picture is of a cultivated tree. The non-productive branches that were not bearing fruit were cut off. But the tree was not left in that condition or would be disfigured and become stunted in its growth. God's work is not merely to cultivate by cutting off the dead branches, but by grafting in new branches on the tree. Paul says a wild olive shoot has been joined to it. Who are the wild olive branches? The Gentiles. They were strangers and foreigners to the covenant of God. They were not privy to the great teachings of the Old Testament scriptures and the effects of God's sanctifying influence in the history of Israel. Notice, it's not that God cuts down the tree and plants a new tree. God doesn't do that. He keeps the substance of the tree and grafts on wild olive branches. The olive tree here pictures what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, 12 through 13. It says, remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Folks, through Christ We've been grafted in to the commonwealth of Israel. The roots of the olive tree, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and on and on and on. We Gentiles are grafted in to this great heritage and inheritance. As one commentator put it, they are our forefathers. Even though their blood is not in our veins, their truth and their heritage is in our hearts. That's a great quote. Let me say that again. They are our forefathers, even though their blood is not in our veins, their truth and their heritage are in our hearts. Don't you just love that? What a heritage we have because we've been grafted in. What an amazing truth. Abraham, our father. David, our brother. Because through Christ, he's made us one. Let's see three applications here. First, as verse 18 says, we must remember that it's not the branches that support the root, but the root supports the branches. As grafted in Gentiles, we must not forget our spiritually inherited Jewish roots. It is biblically unthinkable for a Christian to hate Jews. Why? Because they have given us salvation. Salvation comes from Israel. Our spiritual family heritage roots are all Jewish. From the Old Testament saints to the New Testament apostles to the ethnicity of our Savior himself, our spiritual roots are Jewish. Anti-Semitism is both logically and scripturally wrong and sinful. It is totally unthinkable for a Christian. Now, if we take the olive tree analogy even a step further and look at the varying branches that have been added, we quickly can come to the conclusion that all and any racism or bigotry of any kind is both illogical and sinful. There are the Asian Gentile branches that have been grafted in. There are the Hispanic Gentile branches that have been grafted in. There are the Indian Gentile branches 
branches that have been grafted in. They're the African Gentile branches that are grafted in. They're European Gentile branches that have been grafted in. And we could go on and on and on. Just think of the diversity of the Gentile branches. Men and women of faith in Christ from all races and cultures. All together. All grafted in. To one tree. And to one root. If there is one people on the face of this earth where there should not even be a hint of racism or bigotry, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. It should be us. It must be us. The equality and the diversity of the whole family of God is real and is one of the distinguishing marks of true Christianity. Galatians 3.28, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ. As Christians, we must eradicate all racism from our lives. Well, the second application is that as a grafted in branch, there is no room for selfish pride. Verse 18 says, do not be arrogant. Verse 20 says, do not be proud. Yes, as Paul says, branches were cut off so that we might be grafted in. But instead of that making you feel superior, it should make us feel humble. Because our grafting in has nothing to do with us. It is only to do with God's grace. The pruning and the grafting are total works of God. No one cuts themselves off and no one grafts themselves in. God is the gardener. He alone tends to the tree. Oh, the humility that should wash over our souls. Because God in his election, for God in his grace, for God in his love, grafted us into his family. Our being grafted into the tree should bring us depths of great humility. Which then leads us to our third application. We must continue in God's kindness it says in verse 20 that, that the grafted in Gentiles stand fast through faith. Faith. Fast through faith. It was Israel's unbelief in Christ that cut them off from the tree. It is our belief in Christ that grafts us into the tree. The status of a branch being in the tree is belief, faith in Christ. It has nothing to do with your heritage, your good works, your social status. Your personal morality and it has only to do with Christ, with faith in Christ. So many of the Jews have met the severity of God because of their unbelief, because they had fallen into rebellion and rejection of Christ. And so many of the Gentiles have met the kindness of God because, as Romans 2.4 says, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. They have repented and believed and call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Here again, we see this incredible balance, right? Of our God, perfect in kindness and grace and mercy, perfect in holiness, righteousness and justice. Some might choose to emphasize the kindness of God with less attention to his sternness. Others might overly concentrate only on God's sternness. In the first case, God comes across as well-intentioned, but just a doting grandfather. In the latter case, 
he appears as a merciless ruler. Goodness does not rule out strict justice, and sternness does not rule out graciousness. The two qualities must be maintained in balance. But the balance of God's kindness and severity includes a stern warning in verses 21 and 22. It says, For God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then that the kindness and severity of God, severity to those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. If God did not spare the Jews, the natural branches, because of their unbelief, do you think that God will spare the grafted in branches because of their unbelief? One wrote, If God cut off an apostate Israel because of her unbelief, how much more surely will he cut off an apostate church because of its unbelief? The visible church today is mostly Gentile, and that church encompasses a large percentage of apostate and heretics and others who would reject the absolute and inherent authority of Scripture, would deny its cardinal truths, including the deity of Christ. And the Lord's judgment will fall on the apostate Gentile church just as surely and as swiftly as it did on apostate Israel. The Jews were not in a right standing with God just because they were children of Abraham. Any more than you are in a right standing with God just because you go to church or because you belong to a church. Salvation has never been by status of our association with God. You are no more a Christian by going to church than you are a car by going into your garage. Or that you're a hamburger by going to McDonald's. It's never where you are or what you associate with that makes you a true follower of Christ. It's always and only by God's kindness. And as we respond in repentance and faith. Let's remember Judas. Remember, he was a disciple living with Jesus. A card-carrying member of the elite group of 12 disciples. Totally associated with Jesus. But never responding in repentance and faith to him. We've already talked about this several times in our study in Romans. True salvation is a transaction that results in a lifelong journey of transformation to the glory of Christ. Evaluate. If there is no transformation in your life for Christ, perhaps there has been no real transaction of repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Christ. You might be a card-carrying member. You might be well associated with Christ. But are you all in? Are you confessing Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Are you a true follower of Christ? All true followers of Christ have been saved by God's grace and are kept by God's kindness. The warning is real for apostate churches and for unregenerate church folk. We are never saved by our association 
with Christ. We are only saved by Christ, by grace through faith in him alone. Well, the third reality of the gospel for Israel was to offer that cut-off branches an opportunity to be regrafted in in verses 23 and 24. There's an interesting phrase there in verse 24. Perhaps you caught it. It says, contrary to nature. See, the normal process of grafting called for cultivated shoots, cultivated branches to be joined to a wild olive tree. But Paul reverses the order. Having wild olive branches grafted in to a cultivated olive tree. Hence the phrase, contrary to nature. I think he did that to illustrate a very important point. That everything that he's talking about here is only accomplished by God's supernatural work. It isn't natural. It's contrary to nature. No, it's supernatural. It isn't man's work. No, it's God's work. This isn't by man's will. This is by God's will. This isn't man's plan. This is God working out his plan. God alone is the divine gardener. It is his tree. It is his roots. It is his branches. It is his fruit. One wrote, which is easier to graft a wild olive tree on a cultivated tree or to graft cultivated branches from a onto a cultivated olive tree. Paul is saying, look what God has done. He has grafted you in, and you were wild. You think that he can't regraft the Jewish people back in? Of course he can. How does one get grafted into the tree? Verse 23 tells us, it says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in. How does one get grafted in? Through belief. Through God's power to graft them in. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. Tis for us but to respond and believe. Listen how Peter described the Gentile church in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once in darkness, now in Christ's marvelous light. Once not a people, but now God's people. Once with no mercy, but now having received mercy. So where are you? Are you in the darkness or in Christ's marvelous light? Are you part of God's people? Have you received God's mercy? Have you ever been grafted in? Do you believe, truly believe? Have you exchanged your sin for Christ's salvation. Perhaps you have thought all along that all it took was your association with Christ. All I had to do was be next to him. That's enough. All I have to do is go to church. That's enough. Well, no. Maybe today you need to go all in. Put your faith in Christ. 
as the Lord and Savior of your life. It is so beautiful when the lost, treasured possession comes home, is found. Today can be your day to come home, to go from lost to found. And Christian, remember, remember this great application. Evaluate where do you need to change so that others will better see Christ, Christ living in you, Christ living through you. Let's pray. Father, now we come before you, having been challenged by your word, the truth, the power, the clarity of your word. And Lord, we thank you for that. Because Lord, we need it. We need to be challenged and changed. Perhaps even right now, as you're sitting there, you've all along just been counting on your association with Christ, that you like him, that you like going to church. And you've never totally, really, honestly put that step of faith, of trust, of calling him your Lord and Savior and pledging your life to follow him and to serve him. Well, today, right now, can be your day to go from lost to found, to come to Christ in salvation. Pray to him, even now, in your own words, from your heart, at home, here at the church, pray to him. And always, always, if you need assurance or want to pray with somebody, know that myself or Pastor Rob and others are here to serve you and help you. Well, perhaps as, as Christian, as you evaluate and you look around, you go, people aren't jealous of me because I'm too much like them and not enough like Christ. Be honest with yourself and evaluate and try to figure out how to change and where to go so that you might be more in the image of Christ So people might look at you and your life, look at this church and go, I want what they have. Because it's true, what we have is glorious and amazing, the riches of God's blessings. So Lord, we come to you now asking you to change us today. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen.